from the Cumberland Plateau in the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, Managing Editor and Poetry Editor of the Magazine, and I'm here today with Matthew Oltzman. He's the author of three books, Mezzanines and Contradictions in the Design, both available from Alice James Books. His new book of poems, Constellation Root, will be published in January 2022 by Alice James. I've got something I want to ask you. Do you say root or route when you talk about the book? I think I usually say route, but root sounds good also. It made me think, how do I say that when I say a street, I say like route 47, I say route. But if I am talking about take this route, if you're trying to go here, this is the route you'll take. I say route and the metaphorical implications of that, right? If it's a constellation route, you know, it has that homonym with, you know, the roots of plants or if it's route, it has, you know, a kind of militant homonym to it. Yeah. You know, that was a route. That was a total constellation route. (laughs) Yeah. I think I usually say route. I will say route from now on. I was hoping we could start today with the first poem in the book, which is a bit of a prologue to the book. This is called Day Zero and it has an epigraph from the United States Postal Service Glossary of Postal Terms. The date when a mail piece enters the mail stream and the date when the clock starts for purposes of service performance measurement. So that's a definition of day zero. The old man in the old house yells, let there be light, then flicks a switch on the living room wall to watch the house come to life. He looks up, pleased with his joke, and claps his hands. He says, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place as he twists a steel knob and the sea washes over the dishes in his sink. Let there be bookcases, couches, a table made of oak. Let there be oolong in the kettle, a black molly in the aquarium, and a photo album to hold memories of the dead. Loneliness, quietude, leaves falling in the front yard, and no one to talk to. Suddenly, it's not so delightful, and the man slumps into a rocking chair. He wants to tell you about this place, this world he's conjured while sleeping. He writes your name on his favorite stationery, seals the envelope, walks to the mailbox at the end of the street. Tomorrow, he'll do this again, but bigger, grander, more expensive. This is no genesis which starts on the first day, more like a dress rehearsal the day before, day zero. The letter is in the mail. When it reaches you, everything begins. It's a phenomenal first poem in a book that I've just been enchanted by every time I've been able to sit down and spend some time with it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but I actually just want to I want to talk to you a little bit about the book itself. The structure of it is so interesting to me in that it's a it's a book of poems, but the the poems are are letters or they talk about the kind of exchanges that we have in letters. And I I want you to just talk a little bit about the book and and sort of how you found your way into poems that are cast in this particular way. What was the first letter that you wrote that appears in the book? I'm not sure what the first one I wrote that appears in the book is. The oldest one, though, might that's in the book 
might be like an earlier version of the letter beginning with two lines uh, by Miłosz. That was a subject I'd been trying to write about for a long time. So I don't necessarily know if, I mean, that version of the poem is not the oldest letter to, or the first letter that I wrote for this, but maybe one that has roots going back the furthest. And thinking about your question, what the first letter I wrote was, I think when I, the, when I first started writing poems, or even before that, as a, when I first started writing just creative writing in general, which I started doing in, Late in high school, I was just becoming interested in poetry at the time, and I started writing on my own, not necessarily setting out to write poems, but eventually led in that direction. But my earliest attempts at writing, I think, resembled unmailed letters. You know, they're things you wanted to say but couldn't, things you wanted to say to someone or to the world or to your parents because you're angry with them or to friends or people that weren't your friends. Or maybe it was things I wanted to say, but didn't have the courage to say, or things that I wanted to say, but didn't have the right words in the moment. So a lot of my earliest attempts at writing began as in a form that was sort of similar to a type of letter. And later when I became more conscious about writing poems, the sort of mode of, addre of direct address kept resurfacing in my poetry a lot. And it's it sort of mentioned in the book at one point, I had a teacher named David James when I, after I dropped out of college and then took a set many years off and went back to college, I was in a creative writing class with a poet named David James who said something along the lines like, Matthew, a lot of poems are, are letters, but especially your poems. He, and he was just, it was sort of an off the cuff comment that kind of stuck in the back of my head about how often the poems I was writing were sort of addressing someone in particular or had an imagined audience. And so this book kind of began as I just happened to have a lot of poems that do that. And then I started consciously trying to lean into that. And that's when it became kind of a project, which was an unusual way for me to write in some ways. That word has such a, a weird connotation, right? The project book. Yeah. What I'm struck by in this question is it doesn't feel overdetermined. And the reason was, and I couldn't really figure out why until you said it, which is that from very early on and in these poems, this direct address, these poems as letters, give you access to language that you didn't have at the moment or gives you access to a certain feeling that you knew you wanted to express but didn't know how. And what I'm struck by in poem after poem in the collection is how intimate they are how revealing they are. And there are times when I, I feel like I'm eavesdropping on them a little bit, but I'm doing so in a way that magnifies feelings that are very familiar to me as well. And so that to me is very interesting because the architecture of the book on the outside is, is letters, but the emotional architecture of the book is all about intimacy and person-to-person -person revelation. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you said that it doesn't feel overly, overly determined. And I mean, usually when I when I write, I was gonna say usually when I write a book, but I feel like I don't actually write books. I write single poems and then try to fit them together later. And my first two collections are very much made in that mode where I might have clusters of poems that are very much connected. But overall, it's each is a loose collection of poems where this one had this sort of predetermined feature where a lot of them were 
borrowing the form of a letter or using a type of a epistolary mode or apostrophe. So early on, I kind of knew like there was a governing logic for why many of these poems would go together. And so I thought it was going to be an easier book to put together because of that, because like there's a reason that the poems go together. And But then I, I, I quickly sort of realized a big challenge for me at least was going to be how do I create a, a sense of variation when so many poems are using the same approach? So it then had all the sort of issues I ran into in putting together my first couple books, plus some new ones. But I, I think one of the things that, if it doesn't feel too predetermined, it might be because though the poems have a similar approach that they use a lot of times, even if they're using it differently, but the subject matter is pretty all over the place, pretty scatterbrained, like you know, it leaps around a little bit in terms of what's actually being discussed, I think, in each in each letter or each poem. It seems to me it pays attention to things in the way I sort of expect the Matthew Olson book to pay attention. The poems are always, no matter how disparate their subjects are, what seems to animate them to me is is curiosity and pure respect for what they are thinking about. And often it's the things that we look down on, whether it's you know, the flock of pigeons. One of the things I'm struck by is how the poems are curious and the way they're respectful of their subjects. And what I mean by that is everything that you approach or everything you write to or or the voices that you inhabit to write back to you as poet, you seem to deeply care about the lived experience of that thing, whether it's a, a group of people at Comic-Con dressed up as their favorite characters, or if it's a flock of pigeons that's communicating with you telepathically about a BLT or whether you're not just William Shatner, but William Shatner on a particular voice recording while you're on hold on the telephone. It's always very clear that these things are not being mined for the fact that they are strange. They are approached with respect and dignity and given a kind of presence uh, in the poems that is I think out of line with with uh, the level of seriousness we're told to pay these things, which I think is refreshing. If you're writing a letter to William Shatner, if you're <clears throat> writing a letter from a telepathic flock of pigeons, what's your entry point for a poem like that? How do you, Matthew Oldsman, how do you find your way into the space where you can inhabit that for the poem? I think you mentioned there's a sense of curiosity and that might come from sort of asking questions. A lot of these letters, whether it's uh, if you're having like a kind of dialogue with pigeons, you know, there's a departure from the rules of realism there. And I think when you're making a poem like that, I think you're kind of looking for where the, where the metaphor is, you know, it's not like when you're saying it's not just strangeness for to be strange, it's strange because the the world is strange and you're trying to make sense out of something. So, you're trying to find an apt metaphor to look at something else. One of my teachers, Stephen Dobbins, used to say, subject is pretext. And his idea was a lot of times you start off writing about something and there's the observable subject matter there that you're writing about. But that's that initial start is to kind of help you explore or reach for or describe or discuss something that's not there in the initiating subject or the observable subject that's trying to get at some kind of subtext or some kind of question about what it is to be alive right now or what's going on in the world and so you're looking at one thing to talk about something else so art 
functions as a metaphor. And that's not necessarily always the, the entry point, but that's kind of what I, I think what I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm drafting or revising, when I sense the figurative potential in a moment, I'm always trying to be open or be aware of where those moments come up. And so sometimes I, I have a lot of poems that don't actually make it into the world or n- never see the light of day because they don't transcend the, uh, the initial subject matter. It just seems maybe two-dimensional or lands in an expected place. But when you're writing a poem and it surprises you a little bit and takes me maybe a detour, those are the moments that the poem can go off the rails, but they're also the moments where you're getting closer to making an interesting discovery. Those are the moments where the poem starts taking shape. Like, I don't know if that's the actual entry point, as you called it, but that's the point where I start to sense, oh, this might become a poem. I think my curiosity about it comes from that sense of trying to, when I read the poems, there's always that impulse to sort of reverse engineer them a little bit and sort of think, how did we get to here? And sometimes they announce themselves, not not only your poems, but I think all poems sort of announce that initiating subject pretty clearly. But what's often the most magical part is, like you said, that that point where the poem takes a hard swerve, finds a new subject. I mean, one of the poems in the book that I admire the most, because the poem does sort of reveal this a bit, is the letter to, to Steve Orlin, which uses some of his own, I think from an email, right? I mean, it's some of the material for the letter comes from a letter to talk about this moment of potential and discovery. How often do you know when one of those poems is going to elicit one of those moments. But I guess, I mean, that's, it's impossible to know because you you can't know in the making of the poem when it's going to reveal that other deeper subject, that hard turn that that takes you somewhere else in the poem. I mean, I'm sure that's part of the fun is that it's not, it doesn't immediately reveal itself in that initial part of the process. It's part of the fun and part of the frustration. I mean, sometimes I think you sense the sort of figurative potential of the moment and you know it's there and you can't quite get there or you get there and it doesn't work out the way in a way that's interesting to you or maybe it feels too neat or it feels too predictable when you actually do arrive there or on the other hand you sense the potential for it and then you can never figure it out so i mean in making the poem and trying to make it or trying to put the pieces together it can be fun i mean when when you have a sense of discovery in the process that can be a you know a very thrilling or rewarding part of the writing process but but getting there can also be its own sort of trial i'm curious about whether or not there's one of the poems in the collection that that discovery was deferred that moment of the realization of the full potential of the poem sort of eluded you for a while but then when it when it revealed itself there was that sort of light bulb aha kind of moment where you thought oh, now I see where this poem is going, or now I see what this poem is trying to say. That took you a while to get there and maybe was revelatory about these other letter poems that were working in a similar mode. And maybe not. Maybe there wasn't a a revelation poem for the collection, but is there a poem in the book that was more hard won in that sense of discovery than some of the others? It's a tough question because I feel like that's a lot of the poems. Like maybe half the poems feel like it was there was some labor involved there. And the poem where the title comes from, that was one that took a while to develop. 
it was just an odd poem about someone not being able to find their glasses when they're out, their glasses are like on their face and constantly making sort of you know, stupid mistakes. And slowly it became a poem about wanting to believe that there's a reason for those mistakes or wanting to believe there's a reason for larger things and thinking about accidental discoveries that are made. And, and then there was the postal term, the a star route, which the, the speaker kind of takes out of context that showed up kind of later. That was a poem that sort of seems seems to fit. I think what you're saying, it was a poem where the initial draft felt interesting to me, but never really seemed to make a turn or find a way to become larger than the initial sort of quirkiness of the situation that it was describing. But a lot of the poems in the book do something similar where I had something, I had a piece of a poem and then there was something there that was interesting to me and I had to keep, keep going back to it. That's, that's kind of like one group of poems in the book. And then there's another group of poems where they arrived. I won't say they arrived fully formed, but they had a general structure early on. And then it was a matter of getting the, the little pieces to line up. And there often doesn't seem to be a, much in between those two extremes. It's, it's one where you, you've just got a piece and you're trying to figure out, do I add to it? Do I have to expand this idea? Or you have the shape and you're trying to polish and fine tune it. So the poem where the title comes from, off the top of my head, feels like one that most most closely fits what you're, what you're talking about. Would you read it? Would you be interested in reading it and talking about it a little bit? <laughs> All right. Constellation Route. I spent at least five minutes looking for my glasses when they were on my head. I wish this were a parable about how everything we search for is closer than we expect, but we all know it's an allegory about futility and how in the garden Adam was given just one simple directive and look how that turned out. Already I can hear the voices saying, you're being hyperbolic and overdramatic. But those are the voices of people who can find things when they are wearing those things. People who don't leave their car windows open overnight in the rain, who don't push when the door says pull, who don't trip over their own feet, then spring back up hoping no one saw. I've spent many hours hoping no one saw each monumental effort, each inevitable fall. In moments like these, I want to believe in a cosmic plan, a higher power orchestrating it all, that every blunder has a reason built inside it. The terracotta army and penicillin were discovered by accident. Same with nuclear fusion and the inventions of rubber and the microwave oven. I'm good at accidents, less good at finding meaning in them. A star route is an obsolete postal term for a route given to an outside contractor instead of a regular mail carrier. Records identified this route with an asterisk, a star, Hence its name, though I prefer to imagine an alternate etymology. Another timeline, a couple hundred years ago, a messenger on horseback races to the end. Let's say he gets wildly lost. It's night, lonely, he glances to the sky. It looks like chaos, a tangle of lights, resisting all interpretation. Then, inside that disorder, he finds one light that makes sense, and that's enough to guide him to the next stop. I too look at the world, trying to find the one thing that makes sense. Let's say there are many of us doing this, each following a different lodestar through our confusions, calamities, self-inflicted catastrophes, the pacemaker and x-ray were lucky mistakes. 
radio waves emitted by planes and the sound of the Big Bang, all found via fortuitous errors. Tell me that's not random. These suggest a connection among incongruent paths, recognizable shapes made by disparate points of light. Not an individual star route, but a constellation. The Rosetta Stone, also discovered by accident, unlocked the secrets to understanding hieroglyphics. The shards of the vase I just knocked over, less mysterious, equally urgent to translate. I want those pieces to be a message, a divine code a map back to Asgard, Eden, or Detroit. In my hands, they appear to be random pieces of clay. I rifle through all the kitchen drawers. I search for the glue. So we're going to spend the next four hours of the podcast just talking about this poem. <laughs> it's actually one of the poems I was reluctant <laughs> to ask you about, not just because of the pressure that the title poem, I think, always invites for the reader, the kind of Rosetta stoning that we inevitably do, right, is... What's the significance about this poem that gave the book that particular part of its shape? But also because it seems to me of all the ground, the landscape that gets covered by a lot of the poems of the book, this one seems to, tr- to cover the most. Because it's asking fundamental questions about how we find order in our lives, how we find moments of connection, how we tell the story of ourselves in a way that involves the stories of other people around us. I mean, I, I think that moment towards the end, tell me that's not random. These suggest a connection among incongruent paths, recognizable shapes made by disparate points of light. I mean, that's not just a, a beautiful metaphor for the stories we tell about constellations. I mean, it's to me, it's a yearning on the part of the speaker for that kind of, not only for that kind of ordering, but also the kind of, participatory ordering tell me that i'm not alone in thinking about the world this way and i find it this is another i mean i'm it's the word i keep coming back to in the collection is intimacy there's this there's this real need for connection to other people in this book that poem after poem is just one of the most rewarding figures all the way through it and i i'm curious about that particular emotional energy in the poem where it comes from (laughs) i think in this poem unfortunately it feels like it comes from real life where you're constantly well to say where the speaker in this poem is constantly making airs and trying to feel like there's there's meaning in it or it's kind of stumbling through life and looking at the world around him and trying to say okay everything feels like it's arbitrary and chaos and i'm kind of contributing to that arbitrariness and chaos a, a little bit and trying to find meaning in it and and sometimes struggling to do so sensing it's there or wanting to believe it's there wanting to believe that there's a purpose but for how he is how he's been made how he's living his life and not always able to do so but wanting to going back to your earlier question you know thinking about like the book at large and if was there a poem that took a while to find its shape that that sort of gesture that I think is appearing in this poem feels like it's happening over and over throughout the book. You know, even if the poems are about different things or addressing different people or things, that idea and trying to create or find a type of order or rationale seems like it's a, a recurring thread that's moving throughout a number of the poems. 
in thinking about that, one of the aspects of this poem that I love the most is the permission it gives its speaker. In that, there's that moment where the, the speaker knows something about the world, right? This is what a star route is in the, in the sort of glossary of ordinary bureaucracy. But here's how I think about it. Here's how I think through that origin story. And that way, it, it to me also echoes the first poem in the book, the Day Zero poem, right? There's a kind of narrative genesis in this poem where the speaker is, for all of that fumbling, all of that attempt at order, there's this moment where the speaker realizes, I can tell this story. I can tell a version of how this began. And it may not be perfect. It may not be accurate all the way, but it orders the universe around me enough to articulate something inside of me that I don't have access to, that I don't have the vocabulary for, that I don't know everything about. But I can take this risk and then I can put it in a poem and then I can give it to you. And to me, it's a, it's a startling act of, of generosity in this poem. And it happens over and over and over in this book of the space the poems create for that kind of making on the part of the speaker and then the space they make on the page for the reader to be invited into that reconfiguration of any number of things, whether it's finding connection between people or whether it's trying to find a reason for the violence we visit on each other. I mean, I'm thinking about the poem beginning with two lines by Milos, whether it's poems that are dealing with much bigger issues like climate crisis and pollution and other kinds of of the moment problems that seem unassailable in their vastness. But I think there's a way in which this poem to me recognizes that in a lot of ways, a lot of us are, when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to racism, when it comes to violence that stems from racism, a lot of us are sitting there with our glasses on our head, not knowing where the solution is when the solution is right there. The glasses are right there to help us see. Again, there's a there's a spirit in this poem to get back to my point of the speaker being generous about not quite being equipped to know fully what a thing is, but but making an attempt at it anyway. And creating space for someone else to be involved in that to participate in the storytelling about how we find order in systems that are much bigger than us. I think that's a very generous and kind reading of the poems in there. I'm glad that you feel that, like there's that, that type of openness there. I think many of the poems that I'm most drawn to create an opening for the reader to be kind of involved in the meaning-making enterprises. The poems that I like to read, I think, balance both involving the reader, but also trying to create an experience for, for the reader. And I think that's why, you know, when a lot of us turn to poetry, that's something that we feel, we feel like the poem brings us into the, into the work. And in some ways we're sort of involved in the, we're making connections there, or we see part of our life or part of our world in, in this poem that someone else has made. But then the poem's also creating an experience for us on its own, or at least that's how I feel like I experience my favorite poems by other people. So always sort of a mystery how they do that.
Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. When you were talking just now about connection and that kind of participation that, uh, that the best poems for us create for us, you've been working on this book. This is, this is not a, a book that you've written in the past 18 months, but I, I wonder if the contents of, or the poems in this book, have they taken on a different register for you during the pandemic? I don't know if they have during the pandemic because, uh, um, I, f- I feel, I think I've been so immersed in other stuff since the pandemic and this book feels like I have a little bit of distance from it and it doesn't necessarily always feel connected to what we're going through now. And I've had a little bit of space from it. Alice James accepted the book in the summer of 2019 and then there was a, a long period where I was kind of just working on other stuff and the book was slowly moving through its channels toward publication in January of 2022. I don't want to say that I feel distanced from it or something, but I feel like I'm in, if we want to use like a sporting analogy as I feel like we're sort of between quarters or where I've been, I was really immersed in making those poems for several years. And then the time between finishing this book, which I'll, I'll put, you know, quotation marks around f- the word finishing and it coming out has actually helped me step out of that immersion. But that being said, now that, that it's sort of on the horizon and becoming real and about to be this actual object in the world, thinking about aspects of the, the pandemic, how a lot of these poems are thinking about different different types of connection or how people relate to to each other. That part feels like it might have a different context if I'm looking at it from a distance. But it's a, a little hard for me to, to say because I feel we're still sort of right in the middle of the pandemic. So, I have some distance from the poems, but maybe not the distance from the pandemic to see how those things are sort of interacting with each other. I was sure that there was going to be a difference there. It's one of the things I've been curious about as I read poems now, because I feel like so much of my my life is shaded by what happens on a day-to-day basis. That I was also, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the structure of these poems in this book is that letters always reach us after the fact. You know, even an email, which has a kind of immediacy to it, always arrives sort of recalling something that's already happened. Or, or planning for something that's supposed to happen next. And, and you talk about this in, in one of the poems, right? With the, the earliest version of the mail system being just a guy who might be headed in the right direction. <laughs> and, and, and the letter might get there in a few days. And, in like a month. Yeah. 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 And, if, and if, you, if you want to send something overseas, good luck. Make seven copies and send seven ships. Yeah. You know, and, and there is this tentativeness 
to connection that's sort of embedded in a letter and that you hope it's going to reach someone in the future knowing that its contents and its making have already passed. By the time they get to where they're going, the person who wrote it has already moved on to something else. And so there's always this strange temporal bifurcation, I think, in a letter, in that it's such an intimate form, it's such an intimate vessel for language. And yet, you know, when it reaches its reader, whether it reaches its reader in a collection of poems in January of 2022, or even beyond that, there's increasingly going to be this, this space between the moment when it was made and the moment when it arrives. And despite that, I can't help but feeling as I'm reading the book that very often I'm having a conversation with a poet or having a conversation with the speaker that that poet has created who is dealing with the same stuff <laughs> I'm dealing with like yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me very immediate. I think that's one of the great strengths of of the book and and one of the great strengths of of a number of great poems that they they may say different things to us at different times, but the reason they are the great poems that mean a lot to us is because they have something to say to us whenever we encounter them. Hmm. You know, it's it's funny when you're talking about the way mail works and the way the a letter works, how the letter is always sort of addressing something after the fact or once someone finally gets the, the letter, the person who wrote, wrote it has already moved on to something something else. And... I mean, I think there is a little bit of a feeling about just writing poems in general that feels a little bit like, I mean, you're never really sure who it's going to reach or you you have an idea of a reader, but you're never actually sure who the sort of correspondence is going to be interacting with. It feels like the person lost on a, lost on a desert island, making a poem feels kind of like being on that island and taking a letter and stuffing it into a bottle and putting a cork on it. And then you throw like the, the proverbial bottle into the ocean and hope it reaches right. someone, but you have no idea where, you know, where this thing goes after it's out of your hands or what sort of life it's going, if it's going to find a reader you know, somewhere or if it's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean or there is this kind of mystery between the poem, leaving your mind or leaving your hands and someone else on the other side interacting with it which feels similar to what what you're describing in the in the idea of how letters move through the world so with that in mind (laughs) knowing that the things you make are out of your hands Mm -hmm. knowing that they may reach someone at some point or as a as you say they may sink to the bottom of the ocean why do you do it there is a not small part of me that just likes writing just to make things and likes the process of writing on its own. And I like the process of when you're trying to work this thing out in your head or when you sense there you're on the edge of putting something together or making some literary device that, that works or produces a spark for you. I like that process of sitting at my desk and kind of working on it. Of course, when I actually do that and I get to the point where I'm excited, like, oh, this this might work. And uh, uh, then I want to share it with people. Most of writing, I think for everybody, if I'm understanding how, how this works, most of writing is you sitting alone at a desk. 
for shorter long spans of time and doing that repeatedly over and over over uh, you know years even if you're publishing a lot of stuff and even if the things you send into the world are warmly received those moments are still very spare very sparse compared to the the amount of time that it's just you with your own thoughts in your own head and with a notebook or pacing back and forth in your office or outside or walking you know walking the dog or whatever you do while you're trying to think your way through a poem or you sitting at the sitting at a desk pounding the keyboard keys or scrawling in a notebook and whatever that process looks like whether it's you sitting there staring at a blank piece of paper for three hours then writing four words then crossing out two of them you have to like doing that on its own so for me that has to be part of the reward you just have to like doing this because that's most of what writing poems is you have no idea what's going to happen when you're done if the poem's going to work or if people are going to like it or if they're going to hate it or if the poem will even land in a place where readers will find it i mean of course all of that stuff is when you make something that you like you want it to get to an audience but the other part that happens before the sending it into the world or it appearing in a good magazine or landing in a reader's hands there has to be some sort of joy or pleasure in that you know to make all the other stuff sort of worthwhile and i don't know if this is off topic but there's some frustration in writing of course but there's a lot of times where i i do really find it fun i like doing it and uh I'm going through my day and I'm doing the stuff I have to get done and trying to get stuff done that I have, or at least trying to get stuff done that I'm supposed to get done. But I've got like this line or a handful of lines of poems sort of floating around in the back of my head. And I'm kind of anxious to get back to that. I want to kind of clear away this other stuff so I can get back to that. It's a thing that I'm looking forward to doing. A lot of times in art, well, I mean, with poetry, I think we sort of mythologize the idea of like this struggling, struggling or miserable artist who's in some sort of damp, dark cell, like brooding over candlelight and angsting about the world. And I I have some, some element of that in my own personality where I'm full of anxiety, but the act of writing, I find to be kind of fun and enjoyable. A lot of arts are kind of like that where like no one ever picks up an electric guitar and says, this is going to be miserable. I should do this for the rest of my life. I'm going <laughs> to devote my life to this. A lot of people go into an art because there, there's some joy that they have in it or there's something that they find gratifying about doing it, doing this. So I just like making things. And if I wasn't, poems are a thing that I feel like I have a shot at making something if I, but if I wasn't doing that, maybe it'd be some, maybe I'd try to find some other thing to make, but that process of making something that helps me think about the world or helps me slow down and process things is a, that process on its own is, has become part of the reward. What you're talking about is one of the other things I think often underpins the poems that, that mean a lot to us in that they often reveal this very strange relationship that the person who makes them had to that process, which is animated by so much, right? It's animated by the pure joy of making a thing, the uncertainty 
of that process, knowing that when you sit down, the thing you take great joy in may not result in anything that day or that week or even a couple of years from now. And the added pressure of, if it is a pressure, of not knowing when it will be ready to go out in the world if it's going to find someone. And so there's this really interesting juxtaposition between the joy of making and the uncertainty of that making. And I feel like that's been a, a sort of animating dichotomy in your work from the very beginning, even from Mezzanines, is this conflict between joy in making and in discovery, whether it's in a bottle of Mountain Dew or <laughs> a simple phrase about a what you do with the mouth of a gift horse and who you see inside of it all the way through uh, some of the preoccupations and contradictions in the design, which is a book, you know, end to end, which is about making, about process and about both the the rewards of that process, but also the, the places where that kind of making slips or crumbles even to the, to the new book now, which is animated, I think, by a similar principle of, and, I, and I'm not here to try to like explain your work to you, but oh, please do. Like, I, <laughs> I, I would, I would enjoy that. <laughs> it's it's one of the things that I'm grateful for, sort of appearing on the page, which is this obvious pleasure in thank you in having made a thing, but also, like I said, what I was saying earlier about there's this space made for the reader in in the genesis of the poem which occupies the same space of, I want to create for you the same joy, but I also know that like me, you feel the same uncertainty, the mm-hmm. same lack of assurance, the same lack of connection because you don't know what's going to come next. This is a, a long wind up to a hope that you might finish by reading one more poem from the book. An Offering. I made a miniature fire, and I'll send it to you if you think it will help. It's small, just twigs, just dry leaves, just hopes and scattered wishes, but it's a fire, and I'll send it to you if you need a little fire. It's a fire, and you can have it if you'd like, if you could use such a thing, a burning thing, though admittedly not an especially luminous burning thing, but still a miniature fire. Prometheus stole fire from Olympus and was manacled to a mountain. In Rome, Vulcan could only be worshipped outside the city. This was to protect the citizens from his ashes falling everywhere, searing everything. In Eden, after man was banished from the garden, an angel with a sword of fire was sent to guard the grounds. And there's fire again in the center of the crowd demanding liberty. And there's fire again with a fistful of daisies singing, I love you, I love you, and leading a revolt. This is not that kind of fire. It's a humble fire quiet, peculiar, and forgiving of others. Not destined to be coveted by gods or thieves, but I swear I'll put it in a cast iron pot or maybe a mason jar and set it on your doorstep or present it to you in person if you'd like a modest fire. It won't bring back the dead, assuage your nightmares, or ameliorate a widening rift in our earth. It's only a small fire, shy, uncertain, and a little aloof. It might warm your hands, It might cast a brief light in this duplicitous dark, though I can't guarantee even that. It's only a miniature fire, but I made it for you, and if you want it, it's yours. 
Matthew Oltzman, it's been a pleasure having you on the Snoring Review Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for that reading of my poems. I appreciate the way you've really engaged with them and made me see them a little bit differently. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is The Suwannee Review, new since 1892.